Well, if you want to open your Bible, uh, turn to 2 Thessalonians. We will be spending the evening in 2 Thessalonians. That comes right after 1 Thessalonians, in case you didn't know. We're going through this book, uh, Praying with Paul, a call to spiritual reformation, which T.T. started last week. And, uh, you know, I, I thought of, uh, in the first chapter, uh, I don't remember if T.T. mentioned it, but he, the author talks about uh, all the things that we, we see around us, the things that we, that we think the church needs to come back to. You know, we need to get back to scripture, we need to get back to, you know, attending church, for one. Uh, we, we need our culture to be transformed and all this stuff. And uh, the author says, really what we need to do first is pray. And I think he's right about that. Uh, it reminds me of uh, <clears throat> the Reformation. When the Reformation started, it wasn't a sudden thing necessarily. I mean, it, it, things had been building toward that for a long time. But really what happened first is people started praying. And we need to start praying that God will bring about another Reformation or another revival, if you will. Uh, because generally speaking, God doesn't do things we're not praying for. And so if we really want a Reformation in our own hearts, we need to start praying for it in our own hearts and in the hearts of, of uh, other believers. So now we'll get into the study. So let's, uh, we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 12 out of chapter 1. This is the word of God. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to, give thank, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's, let's pray. Uh, grace of God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would bless your word to the hearers today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul's prayer which we see in verses, uh, starting in verse 3, uh, going through verse 10, gives us a, 
sort of framework and governs, that governs how and what Paul prays for. First point that I want to bring out is that Paul starts with an expression of thankfulness. He's thankful for signs of grace that he sees in believers. In verse 3, he says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Giving thanks is clearly a important component of prayer. Uh, we see in uh, all, most, if not all, of Paul's letters that you know he starts with a salutation usually, and then he pray. He says that he's praying for them, and he expresses his thanks for them. Uh, I think the church in Galatia was an exception to that, because he kind of just launched into like, "What are you guys doing here?" But when Paul prays, he expresses thankfulness. And so we, we ought to be thankful, obviously, but we need to know what exactly is Paul expressing thankfulness for? Well, let me ask you, what do we typically give thanks for? Stuff. Stuff. Yeah, stuff. That's actually not, not a bad answer. <laughs> we give thanks for physical provision, right? Uh, hopefully we all say grace at meals. We're thankful for our our food. What else? Shelter. Shelter, yeah. Our, our housing, clothing. What was that? Answered prayers. Answered prayers, yeah. Yeah. Help. Family. Family. Salvation. Salvation, yeah. How about a new job? You give thanks for a new job or, or a raise at work. Uh, in our day-to-day lives, we might, uh, you know, there's a near miss when we're when we're driving our car, and we thank God for that. Uh, we thank God for physical healing. You know, when we look at our prayer list tonight and, and every night and every Wednesday, and there's lots of prayer requests for physical things, physical healing, things like that. We tend to give thanks for material things, don't we? Uh, it was interesting to me that there were actually no praises or thanks on the list tonight. And that does tell us something, doesn't it? The things that we really are thankful for shows us what we really value. And those are the things that have our hearts. Those are the things we care about the most. So as a first point of application early on, just think about that. What are you thankful for? What do you express thanks for? Or do you express thanks in your prayers. Now, Paul's prayer of thanks may seem foreign to us, right? If, we, if we're honest with ourselves, it may be shocking to us uh, what Paul is giving thanks for. And what is it the thing that we see get Paul giving thanks for most of all when we read this letter to the Thessalonians and other ones? One of them is that he is thankful for the signs of grace in the people he's addressing. He gives thanks that his reader's faith is growing. And how often do we even observe grace growing in the people around us, let alone actually giving thanks for it? If you look at verse 3, he, said, he gives thanks because your faith grows exceedingly. 
And note here, he's not merely giving thanks that they have faith. You know, he is thankful that they have faith. But it's beyond that. It's not just I'm thankful that you're saved. He's thankful that, yeah, they're saved, but their faith is actually growing. The word faith here means, uh, the, the word used for faith means fidelity or faithfulness. And he gives thanks that they're not comfortable just being saved. They're not comfortable with the faith that they had yesterday or the faith they had when they got converted years ago. But they're striving and they're continuing to move forward and to achieve greater measures of faith. Secondly, he gives thanks that their love is increasing. In verse 3, again, he says, the love of every one of you abounds toward each other. And notice again, he doesn't just say he's thankful that their love, or he doesn't say that he's thankful their love toward, toward God is growing. He actually says he's thankful that their love toward one another is growing. Now, of course, you have to love God if you're going to love each other. And what's significant here, at least in Paul's thought, is that the fact that their love toward each other is growing means that they love God. And so he's thankful for that. This is not a sentimental kind of love. This isn't a, you know, lovey feelings, butterflies in your stomach kind of thing. This is the kind of love that Jesus said his disciples would have for one another. In John 13, 34 through 35, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you all, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So along these lines, you know, a close-knit community with shared ideals and goals will usually display a kind of unity, a kind of love toward one another. Right? We look at a sports team that they work together in unity. They have a common goal. And so they strive toward that goal together. Usually if there's discord, we don't think that that's normal. We think that there's something wrong on this team, that they're fighting amongst each other because they're supposed to be unified. Uh, a music group. You know, I've, got a, uh, I've got a group of guys who come in on Thursdays and we all, we all play music together. And uh, one of them is a former Lutheran who doesn't go to church anymore. Two of them are like super, like super liberals. And uh, another guy is, is pretty conservative, not a churchgoer. And then there's me. We all play music together. We all get along just fine when we're playing music. And so there's some unity there. There is some unity around just playing music together. Or, uh, you know, some kind of social club. All of these foster a certain type of unity. But the church, ideally, is on a completely different plane than all of these. Right? The church has rich people and poor people in it. It has learned people and unlearned people. It has people who tend to be very practical, people who are very impractical. It has people who are disciplined people who are flighty and unreliable, people who are extroverted, people who are introverted, people who are sophisticated, me. <laughs> All of these people occupy the church. And there's really just one thing in common with all of us. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ, our love for him. And that's why 
when the local church becomes a hotbed of controversy, when there's strife and there's pain and there's bitterness and division, it's a very pitiful and sad state of affairs, isn't it? It's not unfair to say when this occurs, the people have become idolaters. Idolaters of whatever they think is more important than loving the people around them. Remember this, when people make strong protestations of profound love for Christ that are not mirrored by love for the people around them, then we can legitimately ask how seriously we should take their profession of love for Christ. Because a love for Christ is demonstrated on this plane with the people around us. To put it more positively, the people of God will love each other and their love each other will grow more and more as they fall more in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is an infallible sign of grace in the heart of a believer. And this is what Paul saw in the Thessalonians. He saw this and he was thankful for it. And note too, he doesn't say that the love of some of you or the, sum of mo- the love of most of you is growing. He actually says the love of all of you is growing toward one another. It was, a, it was a healthy place. It was a healthy church. The third thing that Paul gives thank- thanks for is their persevering under trials. And while Paul does not come right out and say, we thank God for your perseverance, it's clear that this is exactly what he's getting at. He doesn't restrict his thanksgiving only to prayer. In fact, the Thessalonians had become so strong in the faith that they would bear these burdens, they would bear these trials, and they would suffer. And Paul saw them as so exemplary in this that he boasted of them, quote, among the churches of God. Right? He wanted other churches to know that the Thessalonians were so faithful in their suffering. He wasn't boasting about how great he was in founding the church. Uh, he wasn't saying, look what I've done. He was boasting that God was working powerfully in the lives of those believers. The boasting really is a form of praise and thanksgiving to God for what he has done in the life of those believers. So those are the three, the three things that we're looking at tonight is that he, he's thankful for their faith, that their faith is growing. He's thankful that their love is increasing and he's thankful for their perseverance and trials. So the question then is, what does this teach us about our own prayer lives? Well, we ought to work to develop a framework of prayer that's similar to Paul's. First thing is we need to look for signs of grace in the lives of the Christians around us. And when we see it, we need to give thanks for it. We ought to ask ourselves, what have we given thanks for recently? What are the categories of things that we give thanks for? When I give thanks, is it mostly material things? Is it spiritual things? <clears throat> I mean, we ought to be thankful for all the good things that God gives us. But we should, we should look at ourselves and see, what am, I, what am I thankful for? And what am I not thankful for that I should be? Have we given thanks recently for specific people that we've seen God's grace working in? Do we praise God when we see evidence of one another growing in conformity to Christ, uh, exemplified by trust and reliability and, and love and spiritual stamina? While Thanksgiving is an important part of Paul's framework for prayer, however, there is more. We come to verses 5 through 10, and uh, 
Paul starts talking about the, the kingdom of God in this. So we see that God is going to vindicate his people, that the Thessalonians were being persecuted. And in verse 5, uh, he says that God counts them, quote, worthy of the kingdom of God as evidenced by their faithfulness. Now, their worthiness is not because of their faithfulness. Their faithfulness is because they are worthy, because they've been made worthy by the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't earn the, they did not earn the right to enter into the kingdom of heaven. They did not persevere enough or so far that God granted it to them. They persevere because that's what God's people do. They persevere because they've been saved by God's grace. And this is what the Bible assumes everywhere and tells us everywhere, is that God's people will persevere in persecution and in the end be vindicated. We see this in Matthew 24, in John 8, Hebrews 3, 1 John 2. And we also know that Christians are going to stumble from time to time. Peter stumbled when he denied the Lord, and Thomas stumbled when he doubted. But in the end, what happened to both of them? Thomas confessed that Christ was Lord, and Peter wept in repentance. Now, without going into great detail of verses 5 through 10, we're not going to exegete that tonight, uh, we can see two, two big themes that Paul brings up. The first one is the kingdom of God is an ultimate kingdom, a consummated kingdom. There is a victory in the end. And the second one is that the suffering of the Thessalonians had a purpose and a goal, a final end. It was not just suffering for the sake of suffering. And we talked about uh, Bernard of Clairvaux on Sunday. If you missed that, the teacher was fantastic. It was me. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he was, he was a mystic. He was very uh, anesthetic. And at that time, a lot of people believed that suffering was just a good thing, that Christians ought to suffer, and so we ought to make our bodies suffer because there was something intrinsically good about that. that that's not a biblical concept. Suffering just for the sake of suffering is not a good thing. Suffering for the sake of being a Christian is a good thing. And maybe the Lord will bring that to us one of these days. So it's this, this final vindication and the purpose of suffering that are these two big goals. In verses 6 through 7, it states, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. So he's talking about the vindication of these believers who were being persecuted. Verse 7 says, And to give you who are troubled rest, uh, sorry, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. So there's going to be vindication, there's going to be uh, retribution for the for evildoers, and there's going to be rest given to the people of God. And then in verse 10, he says, When he comes in that day to be glorified in the saints and to be admired among all those who believe. So the Lord Jesus is going to be glorified in his saints. And that's something that Paul is anticipating. He looks forward to it. Paul looks forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus. And most of us lack that anticipation, don't we? How often do we just think about the coming of the Lord and just bask in the glory of it? Or even just try to think about it for five minutes. No, not too long ago, 
100 years or so, the debates over eschatology were heated and people were willing to divide over the smallest details of their schemes of eschatology. Thankfully, we've grown much more tolerant of each other's views on eschatology. The downside of it is that uh, maybe we don't take eschatology quite as seriously as we ought to. Maybe we don't anticipate and think about and long for the coming of the Lord in the same way that we ought to. Perhaps even, dare I say it, we like this world too much. We're maybe too comfortable with this world. The coming of the Lord and the vindication of his people, the final consummation, the final victory, these for many of us have just become a doctrinal point in our systematic theology, not a vivid reality that we think of frequently that actually transforms us. And this is a loss. This is a great loss. Instead of thinking about those things, valuing things in heaven like we ought to, like Colossians 3.1 says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Instead, we store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy. We heap up material possessions. We, we get confident in those things, and yet they will be useless in eternity. But this is what Paul's looking forward to when he's praying. He's looking forward to the vindication of God's people, and we ought to as well. For others, unbelievers, there will be retribution. Verses 6 through 10 read, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in the saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Now many, many people today find this very difficult to accept. It makes us uncomfortable to think about the fact that people will go to hell if they do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. People will argue that this is repugnant, that this is an Old Testament doctrine, and the New Testament's all about grace and love and forgiveness. And people who say those kinds of things, you can be assured, have never actually read the New Testament. Or the Old Testament, for that matter. It falls far, far short of what the New Testament actually teaches. There, there is justice in the New Testament. And when things, when things are done that are evil, we expect those things to be punished. Now, there was this uh, British soldier years ago, who, uh, not too long ago, actually, he, uh, in a fit of rage, he shot and killed his wife and his infant daughter. And so there was a trial, of course, and, and uh, he, didn't, uh, he didn't plead insanity or anything like that. He was actually quite broken and very, very remorseful of what he did. And so the judge acquitted him because he said, well, he's suffered enough already. 
Is there justice in that? There's no justice in that. It was shocking at the time. Still shocking. And so when we see something like that and we think there's no justice in this, then that ought to tell us that God, who is a just God, is going to punish sin. You know, my notes say a thoughtful study of the Bible reveals that God is not just a, a dispenser of justice and not, not merely a, a God of love. Even a not very thoughtful study of the Bible will reveal that to you. Okay? God is not just a just judge, and he is not just a loving God. He is both. Right? Intrinsic to the gospel is the fact that there must be justice. And the cross is the irrefutable evidence that that is true. Forgiveness of sins is never detached from the cross. It is not possible without the cross. Forgiveness is only possible because there has been real offenses committed against God and there has been a real sacrifice made to pay for those offenses. And this is why those who stubbornly refuse to come to the Lord Jesus Christ to repent of their sins, to beg his forgiveness, that is why they will go to hell. If God is a just God, if he is a good God at all, then justice has to be carried out. If God acts in an unjust way, then the whole moral fabric of the universe collapses. And really, he ceases to be God, and he ceases to be good. The Thessalonian church was suffering because people in their day had rejected God. And they decided that they were going to take it upon themselves to inflict as much damage on these believers as they possibly could. And God tells them that they will be repaid. It says in verse 6, God will repay with tribulation those who trouble you. So yes, this is not a comfortable thing to think about, is it? It's popular to deny the doctrine of hell. In fact, there was a, a famous uh, Christian who wrote a book about there being no hell. I'm not going to name him. Uh, but he, he apostatized, which was not surprising. Hell is not a place full of people who want to repent and who are begging God to forgive him. Hell is a place filled with people who keep on hating God through all eternity. There's no evidence in the Bible that the people in hell are repentant or sorry or remorseful in any way. In our fallen world, unbelievers often appear wise. They often appear strong. They often appear to be in the right. They appear to have good lives, happy lives, fulfilled lives. But believers know that at the end of time, God is the one who's going to be vindicated when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints. And this is what Paul has in mind when he prays, the final vindication. Paul's fundamental orientation when he's praying is the end of the age, the vindication of God's people and the punishment of those who don't know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The emphasis that Paul's prayers have probably should put us to shame. We live in a culture that's pragmatic, 
self-seeking, materialistic, obsessed with being right, obsessed with being respected. And this makes it very difficult for us to follow a savior who was disrespected, who was despised, who was crucified, who was mocked, unless we have our eyes focused on the end. Unless we focus on what the goal is, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the vindication of his people. If we have a short-term focus this day, this week, this month, this year, the next decade, these are all short-term. The end of our life, that is a short-term vision. We need to look long-term, which is eternity. Paul had a long-term vision for his ministry and for his prayers. And you know what Paul did? With the help of the Lord, of course. It was all the Spirit working through him. He turned the world upside down. Biblical spirituality will not last long if Christians are short-sighted, if we are oriented to this world And if we are oriented toward just this world, just this life, just today, just tomorrow, will we ever pray right? Probably not. Probably not. Verse 11, Paul says, With this in mind, we constantly pray for you. And that is, first, discerning uh, signs of grace in the lives of God's people. Secondly, It's confidence in the prospect of God's ultimate victory for his people. That's the framework that Paul has when he prays, and it's the same framework that we ought to adopt in our own prayer life. Any questions? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We pray that you would help all of us here tonight accept uh, your word into our hearts. For any, Lord, who do not have faith in you tonight, Lord, uh, give them faith, give them repentance from their sins, convict them of their need of a Savior. And Lord, help us, as your people become a people who pray uh, within the framework that you've set forth for us, with with the same long-term vision that Paul had, Uh, knowing that in the end, ultimately, the victory is yours and that the the struggles, the trials, the sufferings, the disappointments, the failures of this life are temporary. They are here one moment and gone another and that eternity waits for us. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.